All right. If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, and we will begin again at the first verse, if you would join me in standing, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, consider... How great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us clarity. We pray, God, that as we consider the risen Christ and behold him in this pre-incarnate form, that you would give to us a sense of wonder and give to us a sense of true vision, God, and understanding as we contemplate your greatness. As we contemplate the reality of your love and your mercy, God, help us to be faithful, to not exceed the bounds of Scripture, but also not to fall short of the wonder that you show us. Let us walk the path of truth that Christ would be honored. For we ask it in his name. Amen. So last week we considered some of the greatness of Christ, our great high priest, And we did not exhaust this powerful and sweet topic, nor could we ever, though we have all of eternity to try. But this week, I did want to return to the topic and seek to round out some things that were left off. It will be a glorious contemplation and an opportunity for much worship as we consider the greatness of his person. More specifically, the sweetness of his presence in our lives. This Jesus who saves us is the God who loves us, and it breaks all bounds of sense or expectation, but it is as true as the rising of the sun. So I want to think with you this morning about some more attributes of God that are displayed in the person of Christ, and we see the greatness of his love in his willingness to reveal himself to us. We see the greatness of his love in the fact that he is unwilling to simply leave us groping after him in the darkness, trying to make it up out of the things that we can see in the plants or the trees or the birds or the flowers. Or, and while all of those things speak of him, they do not speak accurately enough. So God reveals himself to us and, and it displays his love. And the scripture tells us that he used to speak to us in visions and dreams and various ways. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. And that's because Jesus is the greatest manifestation of the Father's love. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read the first few verses of Ephesians 2. We'll start at verse 1. You... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So I want to just, before I read on, I want to draw your attention to the reality that before God moved, we were all by nature children of wrath. We were deserving of his wrath. We were deserving of punishment. We were deserving of being cut off. And none of us were seeking after God, and none of us were, were first moving, saying, okay, God, I'm a little better than the rest. None of our little heads poked above the swamp of humanity. It was all of us wretched, all of us deserving of wrath, all of us deserving of indignation. And we were just like the rest of them. And so often we can be tempted to elevate ourselves in our own imagination. We can be tempted to think better of ourselves than we should. And it's important for us to remember that we were children of wrath, just like the rest of them. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what we see is that Christ is the manifestation of the love that God bore for us. And it is a specific love that God bears for those who he has chosen For himself. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 last week, and we read it often, the idea that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. That God determined, I'm going to save the people that I'm going to save. He set his love upon us, and he called us unto himself. And this manifestation of God's love is the person of Christ who came to fulfill this. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And we'll find the flavor of the love of God so clearly displayed here in the writing of John. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So Jesus Christ is for us the manifestation of the Father's love. He is the love of God made flesh. He is the love of God for His people, putting on humanity and becoming one of us to bear the price of our rebellion. This is the determined work of God. This is the purpose of God in all things. And as Christ came to display the love of God for us, to be the love of God unto us, He also shows us the great love that he himself bears for the Father. 
In John chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus said, So that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me the commandment, so I do. Arise, and let us go from here. What's he talking about? You place that in John chapter 14, what's he saying? He's wrapping up his conversation with the disciples in the upper room. They're leaving the upper room. They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And after Gethsemane, they're going to the cross. And what does Jesus say? He says, I want you to understand that what I'm doing, yes, I love you. But I want you to understand that what I'm doing is first and foremost a confession of my love for the Father. You see, often we misrepresent the love of God. We often will hear people say things like this. God loves people more than anything. And while that sounds really nice, it's a lie. God does not love people more than anything. God loves himself more than anything. He loves his own glory. He loves his own person. For God to love us more than he loves himself would be for God to be an idolater. For what we love most displays what we think is most valuable. If God thinks we're more valuable than himself, then we are obviously more important than God, and God is now an idolater. But you see, God knows that loving himself is best and most and first, and he gives us that testimony about his own love, but he also gives us the example of it in Christ Jesus saying, yes, I am doing what I am doing out of love for you, but primarily and First, it is love for the Father that motivates everything that I do. So, so that the world may understand that I love the Father, we're going to get up from this place of relative comfort and safety where we've had this sweet communion as the people, and we're going to go finish the work that I came to do. I'm going to go give myself for your sins because I love the Father. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and give himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So again, we have this emphasis that what Jesus did, he did as an act of sacrifice and as an act of worship and as an act of love unto God the Father. He gave himself for our sins. Yes, he loves us. But he gave himself for our sins because he loves God more. Because he loves the Father more. It was an act of worship. It was an act of sacrifice. And in doing that, he gives us some parameters to understand the love of God for us is rooted and anchored in his own nature. Now this is important because if we think that God loves us because we're special, understand how unstable that makes your knowledge of the love of God. Because all of us, at some point or another, are going to come face to face with the reality that I'm not that special right now. I just did something that's ugly. I just said something that was mean. I just acted in a way that was completely contrary to everything that I know to be true. I just betrayed a friend. I just took something that wasn't mine. I just acted out in anger and wrath. I was just the most vile person on the planet. And God only loved me because I was special and good. And now, how do I feel about God's love? Not so sure he still can. But when I recognize the truth that God loves me because he desires to love, because it's, it's rooted and anchored in his character and his nature and his graciousness, whatever goes on in my life does not have the power to affect God's love for me. 
Because God's love for me was never rooted in me. It's been rooted in him since before the foundations of eternity. And this is an important thing for us to understand. In everything that we do, we need to recognize that the love that Christ bears for us finds its source in the love that he bears for the Father. Now, this is not to mean that Christ doesn't love us. Okay, Some people, they, they can't balance these things, and so they run to the extreme. They say, well, if God doesn't love me most, then he doesn't love me at all. Well, that's silly, um, and it's wrong. <laughs> but, but ultimately, we, we, we don't need to take my word for it. We can take the testimony of Scripture. For instance, John 13, verse 1 says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we know that he's going in obedience. A little later on, chapter 14, he says, I'm going because I love the Father. I'm going out to do what the Father said as a testimony unto the world. But it doesn't alter the fact that he also is bearing love for us and having loved those who were his own, he loved them even though he was about to die an excruciating death and endure the wrath of God on our behalf. It doesn't alter his love. Amen? Sometimes we can feel like there's no way in the world that Jesus could really love me after everything that my sin put him through. But the scripture tells us plainly that's just not the case. He loved us to the end, and he, he never stopped loving. Um, John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. How does the Father love the Son? Limitlessly. He loves the Son without limits. He loves the Son without bounds. He loves the Son without condition. He loves the Son because the Son is the expression of himself. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. So Jesus gives us this example of love being genuinely rooted in the person of God and that not limiting its love for people, but instead giving true and full expression to it. Because if I know that I'm loving out of a heart that is born from God, there are no bounds, which defines my love for people as well. I no longer only can love the people that are nice to me. That's not permitted. It's not healthy. It's not godly. It's not biblical. I'm supposed to love people whether they deserve it or not. I'm supposed to love people even if they hate me. I'm supposed to love them even when they set themselves against me and seek to destroy me. And I do this because it's the same love that Jesus himself bore for me. And it's the same love that God himself bore for me and bears for me. And it's the same love that sent Christ from heaven to die in my place. This is the love that I'm called to express. And Jesus put it this way, perhaps most succinctly. In John 15, verse 13, he said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. This is the testimony of Christ. And while we might see that in in worldly affairs, we see men die on the battlefield to preserve their troops and to preserve their comrades, as, as precious and as great as that is, there is nobody apart from Christ who has ever died in the same way that Jesus did, enduring the wrath of God for the sins of his people, sins that he did not commit, sins that he was absolutely innocent of, In fact, sins that were the opposite of everything Jesus said and did. Jesus fulfilled the absolute righteousness of God's law. He fulfilled the absolute obedience to the law 
that his position demanded. So the love of God is that which gives us understanding and gives us a perspective on what Christ came to do. And it's rooted in who God is rather than being rooted in who we are. So our message and our understanding about God's love is not that God thinks that you're really special and therefore he loves you. It's that you are special because God loves you. You are special because he has set his love upon you. You are special because you have been chosen and called out. And in the end, the offer of Christ unto us is a condescension of God's love. And it is the mercy of God to even give us the knowledge of of what he has shared and what he has done. This knowledge and this condescension has a word that defines it very succinctly. And it is another aspect of the greatness of Christ that I want to think about with you. And it is the fact that he is great in grace. He is magnificent in his grace towards us. So in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I want to think with you about the passage that we read in Numbers this morning. And we find God dealing with Moses in a way that some find really harsh. God told Moses, go out and speak to the rock and water will come forth. And Moses went out and he did what? He was mad at the people and he said, you know what? You people are a bunch of idiots. You're a bunch of rebels and I have to do this for you again. And I have to bring water from the rock. And in his anger and wrath, he took the rod and he struck the rock twice. And God said, because you did that, you don't go into the promised land. And I want you to notice that also Aaron was attached to that same sin. They took Aaron up onto the mountain of Hor, and God said, because of the sin of, uh, at, at the rock, you're going to die. In fact, you're going to die now. Get your clothes off and give them to your son so that he can be the high priest in your place because you ain't coming down from the mountain, Aaron. It's kind of harsh. It's kind of abrupt. But it's the nature of the law. The law defines the righteousness of God in terms that are stark and absolute. And the law has no room in it for mercy and for forgiveness. The law has no room in it for grace. The law is the absolute reality of the character of God made plain and evident because God's holiness is unrelenting. God's holiness is absolute, always and forever. And the law, which says, God, I will earn your righteousness says you cannot, but if you were to try, the standard is perfection. I can't fudge on it because for me to fudge on the standards of the law would be for me to deny myself. So if you want to approach me by the law, if you want to tell me, God, I'm going to do my best and you're going to judge me on how good I managed it, you need to understand that we're not talking about 51%. We're not talking about 50.00001%. We're talking about 100%, absolute perfection, never having missed it, never having failed, never having sinned, never having had a bad thought or a wrong intention from the time that you were born until the time that you died, and that doesn't even deal with original sin. If we set aside the taint of Adam's sin, the imputation of Adam's unrighteousness, which, by the way, according to Paul in Romans chapter 5, opens the way for us to have the imputed righteousness of Christ attached to us. If we set aside the imputation of Adam's unrighteousness and just look at our own actions, you understand 
that an absolute standard of perfection is impossible for you. This is the law. And so when somebody says, I I just want to come to God, and I want God to judge me like a man, I'm going to stand on my own two feet, and I'm going to deal with my God. Okay, you, you will stand there until you fall on your face, and he will deal with you according to your righteousness, but I can tell you right now, you will not like the outcome. Because the only answer which will be given is, depart from me. You have no place in me. Into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the judgment of God upon all unrighteousness. That is why what Christ endured on the cross was so much more than nails and a thorny crown and a scourging. It was so much more than death by suffocation. And crucifixion is perhaps the cruelest way that mankind has ever invented to murder one another. But that is the smallest portion of what Jesus endured. What Jesus endured on the cross was the unmitigated wrath of God for the sins of his people. God poured out his fury upon his son. That's what made the crucifixion of Jesus so terrible. That's what the law demands. But... The law came through Moses, and Moses died under the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is grace? Well, grace is God giving you what you do not deserve. Grace and mercy, they're two sides of the same coin. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. Mercy is God saying, you deserve wrath, but I'm going to put it upon Christ. That still doesn't complete the task. Because we need something beyond that. We not only need our sins to be punished, we also need righteousness to be imputed. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God took our sin, counted it as if Christ were our sin, and took the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputed it to us, counted it to our account. He said, I'm going to count every right thing that Jesus ever did as if you did it. I'm going to count every wrong thing that you ever did as if Jesus did it. This is grace. Grace is God giving us something that we could never deserve. The law and grace are opposite ideas about righteousness. And the law teaches us how we are to seek God on our own, but we will never make it. Grace teaches us how God seeks us. Grace teaches us how God has determined to save a people and done everything needful for their salvation, including giving them life while they still hate him so that they will see their sin in a new light and cry for repentance and mercy. This is why the first cry of a newly living heart is, God, have mercy on me. I'm sorry. When those words come out of somebody's mouth and their heart has been transformed so that they see their sin, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a new birth. The prayer for repentance, that comes after. That comes after we see our sin with a new light and a new heart. It's the product of having been born again. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So the law that demands righteousness from us cannot ever be satisfied. But the grace that gives us forgiveness in spite of us 
now grants us not only forgiveness and an imputed righteousness, but it also grants to us the potential and the ability to fulfill the law of God in some aspect, which God himself says, I will find pleasure in their obedience. So God gives us grace, and he gives us mercy, and he gives us himself, and he gives us a law and says, now that I've made you mine, I'm going to enable you to fulfill my law. I'm going to enable you to walk in righteousness to some degree. And all the days that he grants us life on this rock, he is sanctifying us, making us more like Christ, and bringing our lives into more and more conformity with that amazing reality. So that the outside of our existence begins to look like what he has declared the inside already to be. This is grace in action. And this is the work of God for us. And the faith that we believe with is also evidence of grace. We do not believe based upon faith that is inherent in us. No man has the faith to believe in God. That's why Ephesians 2, we read it earlier, said that grace is not of you, it is the gift of God. Faith is not of you, it is the gift of God. It's not that you dig down deep and you figure out that somewhere inside of you you have a little bit of faith and you're going to fan that little faith into flame. That's not faith. That's your intellect doing its best. Faith is something that God implants in us when he calls us to life. Faith is something that God gives to us and grants to us. It is not present in a once-born worldling. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That means that the grace that is our salvation is also the grace that is our strength. We stand in this grace. We stand in this truth. We stand in the fact that God will always act in a way that is in accordance with his own nature. And since it was his nature that motivated his desire to save a people, we know that he is not going to change that work ever. He will always be lavishing himself upon us. This is the work of our great high priest. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, there's another word that might help us to think about this grace, and it's the reality of kindness. Christ Jesus is kind to us. Kindness, it's an expression of his own nature. He's kind to those of us who do not deserve it. The relationships that we have with those around us help us to see this picture. Because we are often called to extend kindness when kindness is not deserved. We're often called to give better than we get. And we're often called to give better than we see somebody needing or deserving. We're often called to give out of the good things that we have been given because we ourselves have been changed. Luke chapter 6, verse 35 says, Love your enemies. That's hard. (laughs) Amen? Love the people that hate you. Love your enemies. Love the ones who have set themselves towards your destruction. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Now, if you're giving money to your enemies, you better hope for nothing in return. (laughs) 
but give it anyway. Lend, give, give freely, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because, and this is important, He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Have you ever considered the fact that the gracious, gentle heart of God towards us, this love that God has for His people to save us and to make us His own, is an expression of kindness? Have you ever considered that that kindness is inherent in who God is? And that it is His kindness that that allows us access to Him? That it is a kindness on His part to draw us into repentance? It's a kindness on His part to make us His own. You see, when we show kindness, we are merely paving the way for us to see the kindness of God poured over us in the ages to come. Ephesians 2.7 says that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It demonstrates the reality that everything that God has done towards us is His own kindness and condescension. We have to slaughter the thought in us that says we deserve this in any way. We have to lay that to rest. And we have to constantly be seeking to put that thought to death. Because that thought is the heart cry of the old man. I deserve this. I deserve something better. I deserve the love of God. I deserve the majesty of God to be shown to me. I deserve these things because I'm me, darn it. That's the old man. That's the flesh speaking. And that thought needs to be killed every single time it arises in whatever form it comes out. We have to constantly be fighting to put that to death. We have to constantly be fighting to put that aside because it is unworthy of our Christ. It is unworthy of His name. And it's also plainly a lie. So, knowing how difficult it is for us to do this in our own way, God, being gracious and merciful and kind to us, is going to grant us many, many, many opportunities to act this out towards others who treat us like we treated God. He's going to give us the opportunity to come face to face with the reality that I'm going to give kindness to this person even though he's a wretch. I'm going to give kindness to this person even though he deserves me to beat him about the head and shoulders profusely. I'm going to give kindness to this person in spite of the fact that everything he does is an affront to me. I'm still going to give kindness. And I'm going to do that not because it exalts me, because it exalts the Christ who acted that way towards me when I acted this way towards him. And that's a really hard thought for us to put our heads around. It's a really hard thing for us to recognize because let's be honest with ourselves, we just don't see ourselves that badly. We just don't see ourselves as being a people who hated God. We don't see ourselves as being a people who who acted towards God with the spite and the vengefulness that we are often attacked with from other people. But the truth of the scripture is, is that every single time we choose to love anything more than we love God, It is an affront to him at the most foundational and basic level of his own existence. 
Because God is worthy of our love, and he is worthy of our praise, and he is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our obedience. And when we say to him, God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. We, we give him offense in ways that we cannot even begin to fathom. So God wanting us to learn his kindness gives us opportunity to give to others kindness. When we set aside our rights and give what we have been given, we honor the giver of life, the one who was kind to us when we still hated him. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, it's, it's remarkable to me that the context of that instruction is not the church's dealing with the world, but the church's dealing with the church. That, that gives it some teeth. Because let's be really frank. If the people who have been changed by God who love God and who are called to love you can be this hard to be kind toward? <laughs> what hope do we have to deal with them out in the world? Well, apart from God's grace, none at all. And apart from the knowledge that God himself is the one who does this, none. You see, this is the mercy of God being displayed to us in the kindness given to us as, as Christ has loved us. And it's one evidence of the remarkable transformation that has been made in us. As we put on the very character and nature of Christ, we demonstrate that we have been made new. We demonstrate that his own character and his own nature have been imparted to us as well as imputed to us. There is an impartation of righteousness. There is a righteousness that has been given to us by the active indwelling of the Spirit of God. That's why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. I got my translations all mixed up and I messed myself up now. <laughs> long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. lesson to us all. Try not to memorize in multiple translations. <laughs> it makes it very hard. <laughs> but, but understand this. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And when the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, then the fruit that He begins to manifest in our lives is the character of God made flesh. It is the character of God being fleshed out in us. So when you feel that thing rising inside of you that would have been the old man's delight, and all of a sudden something else comes up and says, no, 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 don't do that. And immediately you go, yeah, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> that, that is such evidence that Christ himself is dwelling in you. That is the fruit of the Spirit being made plain. And over and above everything else that goes on, this precious gift should encourage us. Yeah, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. It's going to happen. The flesh sometimes is stronger than the spirit. And when, when we don't feed the spirit and we feed the flesh, these things happen. But the fact that it ever goes the other way, that you are ever able to give kindness when what they deserve is a beating, 
It is evidence that God himself is doing a work in you. It is evidence that God himself is being merciful unto you and that he has been kind to you and that his spirit has been pouring out his goodness over you and demonstrably showing you this. This is why Titus 3, 4 says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared. Right? This is... This is the kindness of God. This is what motivates all of the things that we desire. It is the kindness and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how all of it begins. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with him. Just like Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek began when Melchizedek approached Abraham. Abraham saw him and and recognized some greatness in him. But who initiated the contact? Melchizedek. God himself initiated the contact. We also find then that he is great in his inherent goodness. Now this is less about his innate righteousness. We addressed this last week. And more about the outflow of that righteousness towards others. Goodness is righteousness in action. Goodness is love applied, kindness made manifest, and it is goodness which changes the world around Christ, and it's goodness which changes the world around us. It's when the righteousness of God dwelling in us so powerfully causes us to do things that are just fundamentally good. Because that's not our nature. It's not how we're predisposed in our flesh. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says that a pattern of good and gracious speech elevates everyone who hears. Listen to this. Luke 6, 45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you ever find yourself speaking truth and grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness to anybody in any circumstance, recognize the truth that this is the goodness of God having been planted in you, finding fruit through your life. Whatever things are good in you, they are the presence of God. Whatever things good in you, they are the manifestation of His Spirit. Whatever things in you that are worthy of praise, they are the manifestation of the Spirit of God having been made plain and evident in you. You have the power to evidence that truth. And you have the power to evidence that truth in how you speak to people and how you deal with people, how you engage with them. When evil things come out of your head and come out of your mouth, where do they come from? According to Luke 6. The evil in your heart. So when you allow those things to have expression, um, the popular term is, I'm just venting. Guess what you're venting? You're venting evil. You're venting something that really has no place in a child of God. And here's the impact. When you vent something... What happens? It affects the things that it's vented to. Think about a volcano. All those little places where the hot gases and and hot magma come out. What do they call those? They call those vents. Right? And what do they do to the surrounding countryside? 
they generally set it on fire and they do bad things to it, right? So when we allow ourselves to vent evil, what are we doing? Harm. Put, to put it in a word, we're doing harm. This is why the scripture commands us to not give vent to those things, to not give vent to our passions. But instead, verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. What we're commanded to do is to speak in ways that build people up, that actually bestow grace, that impart righteousness. We're commanded to speak in such a way that those who hear us are elevated towards God. And that's not just when you're having religious conversations. right? That's not just when, when you're, you're engaged in a theological tussle with somebody. That's all the time. That's when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Be careful how you speak. Your children are probably in the car. <laughs> and you might hear something come out of their mouth that they heard come out of yours. Just saying. You need to be attentive to the fact that God has given you the opportunity to bestow grace upon people by how you speak and how you deal with them. By how you engage with this kindness and this gentleness and this love of God. Because goodness towards other people is all of these attributes of God made flesh in you. It is the chance that you have to impact the world around you for the sake of the kingdom. It's the chance that you've been given to actually display the reality of what has been done in you. And it starts with how you speak. But Jesus was also good in his wisdom. James 3, verses 17 and 18 say, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God's wisdom is good. God's wisdom is pure. God's wisdom is beautiful, and God's wisdom sows peace. What needs to happen from the people of God towards a world that is filled with hatred? We need to be sowing peace. We need to be actively engaging in the process and in the practice of imparting good to those around us. Good words good actions, good spirits. Yeah, I know that the world's going crazy, and I know that it makes us crazy, and I know that it makes me in particular quite angry. But that doesn't honor God. My anger, the wrath of man, never accomplishes the righteousness of God. Never. How do I know that? Well, the scripture tells me, aside from a very long list of all the times I could tell you about that I'm not going to. <laughs> The wrath of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. It doesn't happen. But in the instances when God grants me the grace to treat others with kindness and gentleness, with the self-control that comes by the Spirit of God dwelling in me, when goodness comes out of me instead of me coming out of me, amazing things happen. And God in His mercy works through that to change lives. 
This is the goodness of God, and this is wisdom. You need wisdom for the circumstances that you're engaged in? Let me give you a page out of my own book. That snarky thing that comes to you too quickly to hold back, hold it back. There is sometimes a curse in being just a little bit too quick-witted. Very seldom do I walk away from a conversation saying, I should have said, usually I walk a girl going, I wish I hadn't said that. I shouldn't have said that. Because my tongue is fast. And it gets me in trouble. We need to recognize this truth. We need to recognize that we need to be pouring out goodness upon those around us. See, Jesus was good in how he spoke. He was good in wisdom. He was also good in the fact that he fulfilled his purpose with a right heart. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus left the, the, the table with his disciples. He said, I'm going to go do what I came to do so the world may know that I obey God and that I love the Father. And he said that in the context of having told them that he loved them to the end. He said that in the context of having told them that, that he was going to do what he was going to do because he had great love for them. Greater has lo, no man love for his friends than this. He laid on his life for his friends. All of these things were contextually around there. And it made the sacrifice of Jesus sweet and precious. And it also made the statement that the primary motivation of Jesus to obey was his love for the Father, not be a sting. Now, I want you to think about that statement in a different context. Suppose that Jesus had not been kind or gentle. Suppose that Jesus instead said, you know what, I'm going to go die for you miserable pigs. Because God wants me to. Did he speak truth? Well, yeah. But did he speak kindly? No. Would it have had a different impact on them? Almost certainly. Would it have had a desirable impact on them? Probably not. You see, everything that we say and everything that we do is an opportunity for us to communicate the goodness of our God. And he fulfilled his purpose demonstrating that goodness. He came and did what he came to do because of who he was. Way back in chapter 10 of John, he said this, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and don't miss this, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the people that I love. I lay down my life for those who are my own. And he did this out of love for the Father, but he also did it because he was good to us. He was good. He was kind. He was gentle. He was gracious. He was everything unto us that we can never be. But then he gives us his own spirit to dwell in us, to maybe nudge us towards being that just a little bit more. His mercy is that magnificent. 
He is good in how he obeys, and he is good towards us. Romans 2.4 says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It is God's goodness to draw you into repentance. It is God's goodness to take you by the hand and lead you to himself. It's not saying that only, uh, only the good, kind, gentle parts of God will bring somebody to repentance. This is not a testimony that we can only talk about the soft parts of God. This is a testimony telling us that it is an act of God's goodness to draw us to himself. That is the act of God's goodness, the act of his kindness, the act of his love towards us that even gives him the condescension to give us life. And then we have to understand that his work in us is good. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. No matter what it is, this good work that God has begun in you by drawing you to himself, he's going to finish it. And he's going to finish it every bit as well as he began it. Or 3 John 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now this means that Jesus and his goodness is the source of all of our good works and all of our good intentions. Because if you have no vision of what is truly good, you cannot do what is good. That make sense? If your idea of goodness is your idea of goodness, it's going to be empty. And more than empty, it's going to be different for every single person. But when our idea of goodness is defined in the person and the character of Christ Jesus, not only does it unify what we understand to be good, it gives us an, an absolute definition of what is good, of what is kind, of what is right, of what is righteous. Jesus came to do that by revealing to us who the Father was. But it also grants to us the ability to rise above ourselves because we understand what I want is not necessarily the right thing. Instead, I'm to seek something higher and something better. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. May God establish you in every good word and every good work by the consolation that's been given to us in Christ. Or Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, who are zealous for good works. Beloved, hear this. You were saved for the glory of God. You were saved for the pleasure of God. You were saved by the grace of God. But you have been saved for the purposes of God as well. And the purpose of God in your life is that you would be zealous for what is good. Now, sometimes that means you have to set aside the things that you delight in that are not so good. Sometimes that means you have to make an either-or choice about the things that you're going to do. 
And sometimes the things that you're going to have to choose, either or, are not necessarily bad. They're just distracting. They just prevent you from doing something else. Because every decision that you make in your life is a sacrifice of one thing to do something else. You understand that basic dynamic of every decision you will ever make? If you're going to do this, by definition, by doing this, you are not doing that. To put it in the plainest way possible. What God has saved us for is his own purpose so that we become zealous for good works. And good works we read are defined by what? By him. By his will. By his pleasure. We are to be zealous to do the work that God has put in front of us. Does this mean that you can never do anything that you enjoy? No. It's not what I'm contending. What I'm contending is that we need to start looking at this a little more carefully, that we need to start thinking about the fact that God has purpose in everything he brings into your life. And even your desires can be brought to subjection to the will and the purpose of God so that you desire to do what he calls you to do. And that in doing that, you find joy and pleasure. And then you will begin to find that, you know what, even those things that I I delighted in before, they have an avenue in this. See, God prepares all of these things for us. But we must submit them unto him. And we must subject ourselves to the will of the Father. This is really what's implied in Abraham giving to Melchizedek a tithe of the spoils. Melchizedek had no real claim on anything there other than who he was. Abraham earned those things. They were his. But he gave them to Melchizedek as an act of submission to the authority that he represented. And we come to our lives with the same command in place. To submit ourselves to the will of the Father. To submit ourselves to the will of the Son. To submit ourselves to the will of God. So that we might enact His good pleasure rather than ours. And this goodness that is displayed in Christ is magnificent beyond all of our ability to comprehend. It is better than anything you will ever be called to sacrifice and better than anything you will ever be called to turn away from. The goodness of God is greater than all other things put together. And God invites you to drink deeply from the well of His goodness. He invites you to live in that, and to walk in that, and to be a conduit of that grace to a lost and dying world. And whatever else we have going on around us, I can't imagine anything more precious than that. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you teach us to love you and to honor you and that you teach us, God, to walk in grace and truth in such a way that you are magnified by our lives. God, it's an awesome thing to consider how great your love is for us and how great your kindness is and your goodness and and your grace. But God, it's also incredibly awesome for us to contemplate that you've given us all of these things and set before us a path of ministry that no one can close. You've opened doors that none can shut. And you've set us on a path that will lead us into the perfection of your will. God, help us hear you and to walk in obedience that Christ would be honored by everything that we do. For he alone deserves all honor, and he alone deserves all praise, and he alone deserves all glory. 
And we long, God, to give him all that is his. Give us grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.